0: We are um, we're in the middle of a series on Jesus, which is convenient as a church. Um, we've been looking at different aspects of who Jesus is. We've looked at the incarnation. We've looked at him into the Trinity. We've moved into more specific things like prophet, priest, king. Uh, last week, uh, Jesus covered. Terry covered uh, <laughs> Jesus as our Heor, um, and now we're turning to Jesus as our brother, which. Um, Honestly, kind of feels underwhelming to some extent after those other ones. We have Jesus as God, Jesus as prophet, priest, king, and then you move down to brother, which a lot of us have. Um, So you start to wonder is it that important? Is that important? I was struggling with how we fit this into the importance of who we are as Christians this week. now, one thing I discovered in trying to look into this is the term brother is ubiquitous in the New Testament. It shows up all over the place. Um, there are, it occurs, the Greek word for it, which is um, adophas, occurs about 350 times. Um, and to put that in scale, it is the ninth most common noun in the New Testament, Um which puts it ahead of things like discipleship, heaven, or faith, are all occur less often. Now, a strict word count does not dictate how important something is theologically as a concept. Um, uh, I mean, day actually appears above brother, and we're not going to launch into a series on day. Um, But it does give us reason to wonder why it occurs that often. And the actual word usage is instructive. Um, in the Gospels, so um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it occurs about how you would you would expect it to. It has a very natural sense. Um, you use the word primarily brother the way that I am the brother of my sister, Jill. Or the way that the apostles, John and the apostle James, are brothers by virtue of being both sons of Zebedee. Um, it, ha- it refers to a family tie. Um, and even then, when it doesn't occur in that usage, it typically has a metaphorical family tie, like it's the way that Jews refer to other Jews as being brothers, part of the same nation. But even there, there's a family connection because they trace the heritage down to Abraham. So it has a very natural usage through almost exclusively through the Gospels. Once you hit Acts, the usage changes dramatically. It starts to Primarily, it still has the natural usage. It still is how you refer. James is still the brother of John throughout the scriptures. But it starts to take a usage of the church referring to itself. It becomes the dominant way the church refers to other members of the church, which is why it occurs so often. Paul uses it consistently. He addresses brothers, brothers, brothers. It's, that's how the church is talking to each other. They don't use words like congregant or member, they use brother. Um, To show an example of this usage, um, you can look in Acts 15. Uh, The church at this point is trying to solve one of its early controversies, which is how do we relate the Gentiles who are moving into a Jewish church? Do they need to become Jews in order to become Christians? And it goes to the leadership at Jerusalem, which is Jewish, and they debate amongst themselves. They, people give testimonies of what's been happening. They pray, and by the Spirit, they then decide to send a letter to, uh, to the Christians in the surrounding area to tell them their uh, findings. So listen to how they start the letter in verse 23, as soon as I find it. Seriously. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. The Jewish group who's making these decisions, the apostles and the elders, refer to themselves as the brothers. And they are writing to the Gentile, non-Jews, who have come to Christ and they address them as Brothers. This letter is a family affair. This controversy is a family affair. This is a family trying to decide how it is organizing itself. So more than any other thing, the dominant metaphor for the way the church relates to itself is a family. Even when it puts other things like a nation, it's a nation of priests that points back to it's a family-based nation. This concept of brother was immensely important to the early church. Uh, which is my first point, that the church's self-understanding is shaped by a family vision. Um, And just a side note, brothers, when I say brothers, and the way Paul says brothers, when brothers is used in the plural throughout the New Testament, it can very often be translated brothers and sisters. Um, It's common for a gendered language to function that way. If you think of Spanish, niño, boy, niños, boys, or children. Boys and girls. Similarly, adafas, brother, Aldafoy, brothers or brothers and sisters. So when I say brothers, it is not excluding all of the women in the uh, midst. So this still raises the question: the church obviously thought it was very important to refer to themselves that way, but why? How does this fact and how does it tie back to Jesus as being our brother? I and mean, we've considered over the previous weeks Jesus as a king, and we know that it is good to have good, wise leadership of where you live, regardless of whether or not that person knows who you are. Uh, we've talked about Jesus as the good shepherd, and it is good to have a shepherd who is guiding you, even if all you are is to him as a sheep. To have somebody who's going to see you through to where you're going. And Terry talked about Jesus as a healer. And to be honest, if I'm sick and I go to a doctor, I find it good that he knows how to heal my diseases, even if he doesn't know what I've been doing for the past few weeks and isn't that concerned with my life in general. It is good that he is a healer. And similarly, it is good that Jesus is a king. It's good that he is the good shepherd. It is good that he is our healer. But as nice as it is to be able to go into the royal palace and know that you are entering in and you have the ability to have counsel with a wise king, it's all the better to know that the person who's sitting on the throne is your brother who will hear you and then later will invite you into his dining table to share his life with you. Jesus as our brother is not something that just stands alongside of all these things. It's something that overarches them. It defines how Jesus is each of these things. He is our good shepherd, not something in the sense that we're sheep that are mindlessly wanted, but he's also like a bigger brother. He's the older brother who looks at us and will take his arm around us when we start to go astray, who will keep away the bullies and things that try and pick on us. He's the one who will see us through. Jesus as brother colors all of those things, which is why it was, again, so central to the church's understanding. And why they highlighted it as part of who they were. That we are brothers. Because they are, we are brothers not because in coming to the church we signed some special document that then legally binds us as brothers. We're brothers by virtue of having a common brother. Jesus is my brother. Jesus is Justin's brother. Jesus is Terry's brother. Therefore we are brothers. So you can see why the church would want to highlight this. The question is, is it warranted? Um did they just do some good market research and discover this was the thing that people really connected with when they discussed the church? Um I mean it was yeah, king's great, subjects is wonderful, body members, that soon seems a little weird for people, but brother, it's really connecting with people, so we're gonna push that one. Um like with many things, we find that this usage of brother is grounded not in something the church decided, but it's decided first in how Jesus addresses us. I'd said that usage changes in Acts, but it really steps back one step. It changes right after the resurrection. Through most of the Gospels, it's natural, but when Jesus is raised from the dead and he meets Mary in the garden and she is ecstatic to see him, she comes to him and he tells her, to go tell his disciples what she's seen, to go tell the disciples that he's been raised from the dead. He wants her to go tell them this good news, but he doesn't say, Go tell my disciples. He says, Go tell my brothers. And this is not because they were finally at some moment of unity. If there was a time when it was going to be a metaphorical sense based upon we're all marching in step with the same goals, it was on the way up into Jerusalem or maybe at the Last Supper. By this point, that unity has been scattered. When they came to arrest Jesus, everybody fled. When they asked Peter about Jesus, his basic response was, Oop. this is the unity in which these people are now and They are in disarray because the one they were trying to follow was killed. So it's not based on this unity in a metaphorical sense that Jesus is like, these are my brothers. It's something that changes with the resurrection. When he is raised from the dead, something has changed, and he now looks at these people who he called his disciples, who he had called his friends, and he says, go tell my brothers. So it comes from Jesus. Jesus is the one who defines himself as our brother. It's not the other way around. I don't know why I make notes if I don't read them. Um, now the question is, how do we get defined as Jesus's brother? What makes us Jesus's brother? Because I said it changes with the resurrection. and that's part of the reason why it doesn't show up in this sense throughout most of the Gospels, but there is one massive exception to that. Um, And it's found in a couple of the Gospels, um, but I want to look at where it shows up in the Gospel of Mark, which is where we're going to spend the rest of the time today. Um, It's towards the end of chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Um, But first, it needs to be placed in a little bit of context, because we haven't been studying Mark. Um, After his baptism... Jesus goes into the wilderness and then he returns to Galilee and it says that he goes about preaching the kingdom. He says the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is what Jesus goes into the countryside doing. And Mark recounts in the first chapter the favor that finds. It starts with him calling, ironically, a pair of brothers, but it builds quickly. By the end of chapter one, having started with, a pair of brothers, he is so popular and so many people are flocking to him that he can't even enter the towns. So fast is Jesus' favor growing. But that does not present the whole story. And that's what Mark turns to in the second chapter. While Jesus is still finding favor, you see a growing tension against him. It starts with people just grumbling in their hearts about who this guy is who can say these things. And it ends the chapter with them outright opposing him, and then it flows over into chapter 3, where people get so angry with Jesus that they go away and decide they're going to kill him. They're going to find a way to kill this man. So Mark is showing us two parallel paths that are running. Jesus is finding increasing favor, and he's finding increasing resistance that ends with people who would rather see him dead than see him continue doing what he's doing. And then, to tie that back together, this group goes away to figure out how to kill him, And Mark switches to the calling of the apostles. So you can see how the paths are going up where he has people that are going away to try and kill him and he has people who he's now called from this group that's following him to go away from him eventually and proclaim his message and see it continued. So that's the paths. Mark is showing the tension that's building around Jesus and the conflict that's found through this gospel. And he's about to, in the story of chapter 4, he's going to go into some more details around Jesus' ministry and teaching and what he does. But before he does that, he stops to tell one more story in the context of this tension and resistance to Jesus. And that's where we find, oddly, Jesus talking about being his brother. Oh, and I should have turned myself. So starting in chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so they could not not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So this is Jesus' mother and his brothers. They're looking at this guy who has this massive crowd, and it is taking a toll on him. He can't even stop to eat. So they say he's out of his mind. Now, the story is going to continue in just a few verses, but Mark does something he commonly does here as a literary um, technique. He drops the story in the middle of the story. I mean, this is not some fancy biblical idea. You did see this in movies all the time where you you have something that happens and then it cuts with something else and then you go back to the story at hand. And what the director there is trying to get you to do as Mark is, is he wants you to see how these two ideas are related. He's dropping a story in the midst because he wants you to, between the continuation of this single story, because he wants how it happens to help you understand what he's talking about here. And the story is the one where some scribes come to challenge Jesus and basically accuse him of having a demon and doing what he's doing by the power of Satan, which is pretty harsh. This is what's happening. Mark's telling a story about Jesus' family being concerned that he's out of his mind, and then he drops in a story about the scribes coming and accusing Jesus of having a demon and doing what he's doing by the powers of evil. And then he picks right back up in the family story. So keep that middle story in mind as we go through this. Continuing on, jumping down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. That's Jesus' mother and brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother." The first half of this this passage follows a very expected path. You have a family who sees their son or their brother. In the midst of doing this ministry that's gaining popularity and they see it taking a toll on him, the way you'd see a loved one who's taken on a new job and it's taking a toll on them and you want to go to them and say, hey, maybe you should calm down a notch. Or they've gotten a relationship and they seem to be losing themselves and you go to them and say, hey, back off just a little. You have a family that is concerned and we, can't, we shouldn't read anything into this. The mark does not imply there's anything here but a genuine family concern. They think he's crazy and they're concerned. So they go, and they find him surrounded. They're in a building. I mean, this is not like he's in a giant concert hall. Picture a much smaller building. But he's surrounded. Most likely at the very center are these apostles he's just called. He's surrounded, as you would expect a leader of a movement to be. And they come, and the person who's nearest the door sees these people and knows this is Jesus' family, as you would expect. And then he, they go, oh, Jesus is going to want to know about this. Again, as you would expect, so they send the message to Jesus. Everything here has followed a pattern we can easily picture until it gets to Jesus, who does something shocking. He doesn't say, oh, Mom's here? Just bring her down. We can make some room up front here for her. She can sit here, and I'll talk to her afterwards. Instead, he essentially says, who? Who words my mother and my brother? I mean, this is a, a radical challenge in some ways to family because family is not a thing that's confusing. Um, my daughter loves many of your children, and she arguably sometimes loves them more than Ezra. But Ezra is her brother. Your children are not her siblings, and that's not confusing in any way whatsoever. Even she understands that concept. Family is something that's very easy to trace. And Jesus' basic response is, who's my family? Now, he is not denying that these people have a special place. He's not being harsh and doesn't care about who his mother is. He is later, he will be on the cross hanging in agony. And one of the things he does is actually make sure she's taken care of from that point. That's how much he cares about this woman. And he's also not making some super individualistic turn for a moment the way we would kind of in our culture where you kind of deny your family every three weeks when you're in high school. He is not trying to ratchet down who his family concern applies to. He's trying to blow it wide open. His response is not... Who is my mother and my brother in a sense of saying, these people have nothing to do with me. Part of the reason he makes such a harsh statement here is he's trying to show his family is not limited simply by blood. Who's his family? Whoever. Who can be part of the family of God? Whoever. Everyone who uh, thirsts can come and get a drink from Jesus, not simply Mary and her kids. So that's the second, or one of the points, I've lost count. The brotherhood of Jesus is wide open. And this is something the church has struggled with the whole time, actually. I mean, the earliest controversy of the, at least one of the earliest, we're very close to trying to figure out, is what is the lines of the family of the church? Is it limited simply to Jews? Do these people who are non-Jews, can they even come in? And if they do come in, do they need to become Jewish prior to doing this? It is an issue of trying to limit down who can be part of the family of God. And it has continued with us throughout the entire history. Sometimes it takes a very overt manner of denying the humanity of one type of person so as to basically say they can't become a Christian because it's limited humans. Sorry. But usually it takes a more insipid, subtle variation, which is to say, it's fine if you're a Christian, just go do it over there. And sadly, this has been way too much of the legacy of the American church. There are a proliferation of African-American denominations. And it's not because they were trying to get away from the white church. It was because the white church wouldn't have them. And it definitely wouldn't have them as leaders. It was to limit it down so it, it was say, yeah, you can be Christians. We'll believe that, but go be over there. Theoretically and theologically, you're my brother and sister, but I'm not going to treat you that way. And we can't let race blind us to the ways that we're guilty of this as well. We might not draw a line across race, but we follow this same thinking every time we would limit We would look at people and based on their interests, their class, their educational background, their nation, their ethnic group, anything. Anytime we would look at that and say, this better defines who my family is, my broader family, than the body of Christ, we are committing the same error. And we can't do that. Jesus looks at all the lines we would naturally draw and he busts the door open and says, whoever. Whoever. Woe to us if we set it in entire. So that's part of why Jesus is harsh in his response to his family when he says that, Who is my mother and my brother? It's because he's drawing, trying to make very clear that the limits of his family, of the family of God, is not set by blood. But the other reason, there's two reasons. The other reason is tied into how this falls in the passage. Mark wants us to see that Jesus's family thinking he's crazy falls on the same spectrum of the people who thinks he has a demon and want to see him destroyed do they think he has a demon and want to see him destroyed no they aren't in that camp but it's along the same line it's the same path it's just a further completion down it because that's what because the other error there's an error of trying to limit down who can be in the body of Christ and the other error is thinking there's no limit whatsoever. Because Jesus doesn't simply say, "Who is my mother and my brother?" Whoever, skip a little bit. I mean, just to read the passage again. He doesn't say, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" Here are my mother and my brothers. He is my mother, my sister, and my brother. He has a line there in the middle for whoever does the will of God. He would not let it be limited by family, but he also doesn't just let family get, there isn't some automatic entryway into this. There's no legacy admission into the kingdom of God. The brothers of Jesus, the sisters of Jesus, the family of Jesus are those who do the will of God. And this is the sort of verse as good American Protestants can just kind of make us itchy because we know it's been catechized into us salvation is by faith alone you just got to believe so we see verses like this and we don't know quite what to do with them because it just feels like a creeping legalism these sorts of passages feel really awkward um so we kind of can take one of two paths. We either set off, just doubling down on it's faith alone, and we start trying to sand off all the edges that make that kind of awkward. So we read through verses like this, and we think that Jesus is just talking in some weird first-century messianic way of saying, whoever believes in me. Just use strange words for that. The same reason he uses strange words elsewhere. The problem is he keeps doing it. He says things like this all the time. I mean, don't even get to the um, sheep and the goats. It's really hard to twist around. So we can try and kind of escape. We just run back to the epistles and run to Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not by your own doing. It's the work of God, the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. And we breathe easy again. And we try and force that back, and again, we get these odd statements on Jesus, we sand them off, but we continue forward with that. The problem is, if we keep reading through Ephesians, we eventually run into Ephesians 5.5. 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I mean, the Bible keeps screwing with our axiomatic statements. We have good theology, and the Bible messes it up everywhere we go. And we start to wonder if we're reading it incorrectly. And the mistake we can often too often make is we just start to limit down what we read. We read the passages we like, and we, don't, we stay away from the Scriptures as a whole because, I mean, the Old Testament's freaky enough, but the New Testament even has these minds all over it. Or we go the other route, and we start to take a view that grace is given, but there's a certain line of behavior you've got to get to. You're right here. You get some grace. God's going to help you get better. But you got to get at least this high, or else you aren't making it. Now the problem is, for one thing, that line is very not defined in the Bible. Which is odd if it's that important. The line we get is, be perfect. And we know it's not that, and we know it's not nothing. So we try and kind of figure out where it might be. And we find absolutely zero peace in that, because that line is very fuzzy, and we always are wondering, are we going to make it that far? And it also makes verses like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 very hard to understand. How is that a gift? Not by works. Now, the problem is, we have a faulty understanding of how justification, sanctification, and salvation are related. To define justification is where God declares you righteous. Sanctification is God transforming who you are, just speaking in broad, quick terms. Salvation kind of encompasses as well. It's God saving us. And on the second error, where you're trying to figure out that line, it's collapsing sanctification and justification into one thing, which involves us needing to get to a certain spot to reach that salvation point of being saved. I don't think that is the error most of us are prone to falling into. Typically, we have instead of conflated the two, we have completely divorced them. Got justification over here and over there in a corner, sanctification. Never the two may meet. And we see, we know that we have been declared righteous by God through faith in our justification. And that's going to get us where we need to go. And so, sanctification becomes a nice add on if we've got some free time. It becomes something along the lines of like an extended warranty or Apple Care or like seat warmers. I've got the car of justification, but it gets cold in the winter, so I need seat warmers. So, I'll get a little bit of sanctification on the side. The problem is, and just to that mindset's off, and just to use a bit of a metaphor trying to try and explain it. We have a view where God is this cosmic landlord, and what he's doing is he's going around buying plots of land, us. And what he does is he signs the title deed, justification, which on our side looks like we've prayed a prayer, we've believed in some way, and then it's done. And at some point he's gonna develop these plots of land he's gotten into the great heavenly city. And in the meantime, maybe he'll do something in the middle. The deed that's signed is the important thing. We have the reference point. This is what will make sure that gets built up in the final day. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that God is closer to God going around. And when he sees the plot of land, he plants like a a seed of some tree in the middle of it. And every one of the plots of land that at the, when the time comes, has that seed in it. That's where the heavenly city is going to go up when the end times come and everything goes all this way. But in the meantime, what does a seed do? It grows. And it continues to grow and it transforms the plot of land where it's planted. So we have this, the justification, God's planted the seed, we are his, but in that same act, he has put something within us that will produce something. It's not a, if it gets around to it, we might build something here. It is a tree placed in soil and those grow. Sorry, it's a seed placed in soil and those grow. Trees grow too, but that's not what I'm looking for here. So you have in this, you see that justification and sanctification are unified, not because they're the exact same thing, but because they're related to the same act by the same person. And the doing of the one will lead to the other. And you can see that we are saved by faith. That seed is planted within us by faith. We don't plant the seed. And this is also not some backwards way of getting works back into it. Because what is not going to happen in the final day is God's not going to go around all the plots of land with his large tree measuring stick and make sure every tree has hit a certain height. Like every tree, oh, you only grew an inch, uh, two feet. The cutoff is five No heavenly city be going here. He goes around, if the siege there, regardless of whether it has grown into a magnificent oak tree and there are a thousand birds sitting in it, singing in harmony, or it's a plot of land with a bunch of cans on it and a little fire pit over here and maybe a McDonald's, and a seed that is not even started to grow, but hasn't even broken the surface to the degree that you can see there's something there, in both cases, there is a seed there. In both cases, God knows that's his. But there is a seed, and seeds grow. And that's how you can get a thief on a cross, hanging, and Jesus is like, you're going to be with heaven with me, uh, the Lord, I can't remember the actual word, you're going to be with me to, as tomorrow, implying in death. And all the guy did after a horrible life that got him to the cross, correctly somehow, <laughs> really bad to get in the cross and go, yeah, I kind of should be here. That life, still, a seed was planted in that moment that was good. The good, even though it showed no fruit in that life, but it was enough by faith to get him to be with Jesus. That said, if somebody signed a card when they were 14 at summer camp, And they're now 65 and the card is up in their attic and they have not thought about it once or done anything around it. No seed was planted. Very likely. Again, maybe there was a small seed that we haven't seen. We can't judge this. But what we expect in a life that has been touched by God and has been justified is a life of sanctification. It's only by divorcing those two that you can even get to the concept which we've been trying to fight against that you are a Christian and maybe you're a disciple. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple because you have been saved and you are in the process of being transformed by God. And it does not mean you reach some level of perfection. It doesn't mean you, str- you don't struggle with sins. This concept is how we can read. I mean, the passage that Aaron read on 1 John, it has wonderful things like, God's called us, his, his we've been called children of God, and so we are. And then it says things like, no one who abides on him keeps on sinning. And you kind of go, oh, crap. But the reason this works, the reason this concept that there is a justification that also works out our sanctification is what makes sense of these whole things. Because you see that God's seed abides on him, and he cannot keep on sinning that seed is going to overcome the sin that's within you. The Spirit, God's Holy Spirit being placed within you, when you were made Christ and when you were justified, that Spirit will eventually overcome the sin that dwells within you. And if you struggle with sin, that is a great mercy. but it is not because the sin has been overcome that you are made gods. We have hope because we are gods. The chains have been broken because we are gods. But the person who broke our chains is also the same spirit who is putting to death the sin that took us. And that's why Jesus can talk this way. It's not because he has some bizarre first century messianic speak where everything's in code. A lot of it is, but everything's in code. And when he says, whoever does the will of God, he means whoever gets to this, whoever just believes in me. What he's saying is, whoever does the will of God, he can say that because the people who believe on him, the ones who repent and believe are those who turn their path, who go to follow him, who follow in his ways. To come and believe in Jesus is to turn away from your sin. It does not mean you have to get it all overcome and get to a certain point, but it means there's a break that happens because you look at him and say, your way is better than my way. All of this is still attracted to me. I want to turn away from it. I want to see it overcome. I know I won't in this life, but your way is better. And I want to follow it. And you see a, start to see a transformation you see a heart that is doing the will of God, even if the body and the flesh are kicking against it every life. So Jesus can speak and say, whoever does the will of God, and means simply the people who have placed their faith in him and who have come towards him because he knows who his spirit is that he has placed within him and how that spirit will transform who they are. So we have a church that is defined as the family of God. It is a series of brothers. You are my brothers and my sisters. We are that because we are together all. We all have Jesus as our brother. We have Jesus as our brother because he does not limit his family to flesh and blood. He doesn't limit his family even to the nation that he was born in, but he blows it open to where all can come. And he makes it. He makes us ours. He makes us his brothers. The reason it happens at the resurrection after that point is because he, he has overcome sin and death. He has defeated the works of Satan. He has come and he can now plant his spirit within us And make us his brothers and sisters. And that spirit will overcome the sin within us. And transform who we are. That's why it's wonderful Jesus is our brother. And the other thing that Jesus being our brother means. I mean, James and John are brothers. Because they're both the sons of Zebedee which is a cool name. They're both the sons of Zebedee. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus. Jesus is our brothers because all of us share a common father. And that is an entirely different, magnificent thing. But it is the heritage we all share. Terry said something last week that was so important. We come to Jesus as our healer, But the ultimate healing we get, the thing we are actually coming for, is Jesus himself. All of Christianity. None of it makes enough sense if it's just about the things we get. Getting our lives ordered, getting better relationships, overcoming bad habits, finding some peace. None of it is worth what this says it can cost. If that's all it is. But that's not the ultimate inheritance. The ultimate inheritance is God. And that inheritance is God as a father. It's God, the God-man as our brother. And it is eternity with those people.